y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the privilege of chatting with Grant Gender, author of four bestsellers that are all hilarious and fun to read. His latest book, Honestly We Meant Well, which was published in 2019, is no exception. This story follows the Wright family, Sue Ellen, Dean, and Will, who appear to be the perfect family. On the surface, everything seems great, particularly when Sue Ellen receives an invite to lecture to a tour group on the Greek island of Aegina. But then disaster strikes and everything changes. From Berkeley, California to the famous ruins of Greece, this book takes readers on a fantastic journey with characters who will make you laugh, break your heart, and think hard about how the past can be the key to the future, even if it's a different one than you imagined. I had so much fun chatting with Grant about the inspiration behind this story, why we often hold on to painful memories, as well as our mutual love for an 80s film starring Christina Applegate. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I am so, so excited to be chatting today with the author of the fabulous and hilarious book, Honestly We Meant Well, Grant Gender. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yes, I'm so good. I'm so excited. We have been planning this for months. I picked up your book and I knew that I would love it because the cover alone, which I'm holding, which obviously people can't see, is just so inviting. And as I kind of said to you when I messaged you and reached out to you about doing this episode, I just was so entranced by the cover because I feel like even before you start reading, it's already kind of giving you a sneak peek into the actual story and what we're actually going to find out. I love the cover too. Uh, a, a gentleman named Evan Gaffney designed it and he's he's incredible. He, uh, he also did the cover for my previous book, uh, The People We Hated the Wedding. He's a genius. You know, he he managed to capture sort of obviously both the setting of the novel, the playfulness, I guess you could call it, of the novel. Um, yeah, and so, uh, and also sort of a, a novel about like these lives in ruins, you know, <laughs> which I, I think the cover conveys as well. And so I'm, a, I'm, I'm biased, but I'm a big fan as well. I'm always intrigued by covers. I just was drawn to the cover because it just looks like so much fun, but at the same time, you know that there's going to be more to the actual cover. And I think when it comes to books, I definitely advise to judge books by the cover because this is just fantastic. (laughs) And even if you are familiar with Greece, your mind kind of conjures up so many questions when you're like, oh my gosh, you know, what actually is this book about? And I was just wondering what do you really love about this cover? How does it speak to you as the author? And in your opinion, how does it really set readers up for the story that they're about to read? I love literature with a sense of humor. And... I think that humor is a really interesting way to to kind of get us into more serious conversation. In this book, those conversations tend to be mostly um, about regrets and you know paths that 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 were not taken, and how regrets pile up for each individual person, and how we eventually learn to deal with those regrets or address those regrets. And so, the cover itself, I think, you know, with the statue holding the wine glass, it, it kind of nods to the fact that that this is a story that takes place in Greece, which is obviously a place with a lot of history. And you know that the wine glass is playful, but then also in the background, you see sort of the ruins of the Acropolis and these fallen structures, which for me is really important because the book itself is sort of about these fallen lives. I love the fact that we're not just given to one person's perspective when it comes to the ins and outs of these relationships we're hearing from all different types of characters within the book which is really great and even the characters that 
don't necessarily have the same path. Um, we still kind of see how they feel about what the other person is going through, which I absolutely loved. I love when from different characters, you don't necessarily want it to just be one person's perspective because as they say, there's always two sides to a story. And in this case, there's three sides to some of the stories. <laughs> Um, but I'm sure that listeners are just like, oh my gosh, can you please just tell me what this book is about? So I thought it would be fun for people who haven't read it yet. If you want to just maybe give a, a little bit of a synopsis about what the book is and why, in my opinion, I think this is such a timeless book. And I'd love to hear from you on why you think this is such a timeless book. It's about a family going to Greece for the summer. The mother in the family, uh, her name's Sue Ellen, and she's a professor of classical studies at Berkeley in California. And she's invited to give a speech on, on an island called Aegina, which is in the Saronic Gulf, uh, which is just right off the coast of Athens. And so she has a bit of history on this island, or actually quite a bit of history on this island. She decides kind of as a last-ditch effort to, to bring her family with her for the summer. And the family is, is a husband named Dean, who is a novelist and not the nicest of guys. Uh, and then her son, Will, who has just graduated Berkeley and is is sort of floundering in terms of finding a job and deciding what to do with next with his life. And so the family lands on this island and they stay at an inn where Sue Ellen stayed when she went there the first time, which was in her 20s. The inn is run by a young woman named Eleni, with whom Sue Ellen has a link. So while they're on this island, they're all sort of confronting these different regrets that they've had and these different mistakes that they've made the three primary characters, um, as well as some of the secondary characters, and deciding sort of sort of how to move forward after this particular summer. Uh, that's sort of what it's about on the plot level, um, which I guess kind of kind of hints at what I think it's about, or what what I hope makes makes the book a, a timeless read, which is this notion of regret how we deal with these regrets as they build up. One of the reasons why I decided to set it in Greece, which is like such a sidebar, but a really good friend of mine from childhood had been like living in Rome. She was American, but she had been like living in Rome for like eight years. Incredible. She's since married a Roman guy. She was telling me one of the sort of Roman metro lines that they're trying to build, they keep having to stop because like, you know, they'll dig like whatever, like a hundred feet and they'll run into like, another artifact or another ruin or something. And so that idea of like kind of the city is a layer cake or like civilization is a layer cake of just built upon, built upon, built upon um, is really interesting to me. And is really interesting to me is like a parallel for people's lives. Because if you think about it, you know, we go down one path and that path doesn't work. So we change direction and we kind of bury that and build upon what we knew before and build upon what we knew before. And so as I was thinking about these characters' lives and how they were doing that action, the, the sort of Greece itself made a lot of sense for me in terms of placing it there. I love it. And I think what's really interesting, as you touched on there, about the different layers that we have within us and also how that plays into the people that we end up becoming, because I think everyone could probably raise their hand and say that they've had some form of upset or tragedy, you know, as unfortunate as that is, it really builds character and really sometimes makes you go down paths that are for the better, even though at the time they feel like the most horrible thing in the world happened to you. And I think there are different instances in your book where at the time that you're reading it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is horrible that's happening to this character. It's almost difficult to watch and heartbreaking at times. But then they end up having something wonderful happen to them as a result of it. I don't know if, if maybe that was just me that felt that way, but oh. especially with Sue Ellen, we'll go into Christos in a minute, but I think as hard as it was to see her struggle, I feel like she ended up being the amazing classics professor 
that she is because she had so much to learn from in terms of building out who she was. I don't, I don't know if that sounds weird, but that's just kind of how I felt. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that sometimes, yeah, we like to tell ourselves that like that, which doesn't kill us, like makes yeah. us strong. Sometimes it like doesn't. But I think what it does that's really interesting, it kind of puts us on another path that like just becomes the new normal, right? Where it's like, okay, well now this is my life. But like you still have to do something with the life that left over right you still have sort of like this these ruins or this disarray or something over here it's like what do you do with that in, in figuring out those problems i think is really really interesting your main character sue ellen i'm gonna give away a little bit of trivia on this so grant and i share a love for a phenomenal movie called don't tell mom the babysitter's dead uh, if you haven't watched it shame on you and if you have watched it you'll know exactly why we have so much enthusiasm for it <laughs> So just a quick snippet. So Christina Applegate plays Sue Ellen Cranston and she lives with her family and there's like a million kids it feels like and her mom goes away to Australia to go be with her boyfriend and essentially she thinks she has the run of the house for the summer but then they get this really old decrepit babysitter, Mrs. Sturak, and essentially something happens to Mrs. Sturak and the kids get the run of the house and basically Sue Ellen becomes this like exec for the summer and... (laughs) <laughs> the best line of the whole film, Grant. Would you like to say it? I'm right on top of that, Rose. Oh, my God. It's like the best line ever. So good. And sometimes when I'm just feeling playful, I'll message Grant and be like, I'm right on top of that, Rose. And he gets it every time, and it's fabulous. So Sue Ellen, who you've given this name to because you share that love, is, like I said, she's such a firm person. And I almost found myself, because I don't know much about classics and everything like that the very beginning of the book is really interesting because it really sets the scene about who she is so she's very in control of her life she's she has a very clear kind of structure in terms of how she manages things and she gets this call from this woman who wants her to do this speech and I feel like she's not surprised that this invitation has kind of come her way because she knows how good she is at what she does. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I also feel like she is a little taken aback because it's kind of like, well, I'm just over here doing my job. And then this kind of gets thrown left to center. And I'm not really sure what to do with it because there actually is so much attached to what this invitation is actually going to be for me. And as you observe her as a reader, you know, her previous adventures in her 20s in Greece are so monumental to who she is as a person. And as we're kind of talking about those paths that she's taken, and it made me really nostalgic for when I took my first trip to Europe and you're so different in your twenties than you end up being in your thirties and your forties. I would really just love for you to talk about your process in writing Sue Ellen, because she's technically the main character, but then when we switch and we hear from Will and we hear from other characters, she's not necessarily the main character anymore. She's kind of enveloped into the wider story. Um, And I would really just love for you to talk through that. Did you, always know that you wanted her past to be as vibrant as her present or how did you really that's a really good question this book the process was sort of different than than other books i've written when i first sat down to write it i didn't quite know whose story it was and so the characters were sort of weighed equally but as i kind of got into it Sue Ellen just kind of rose to the top, like her story and what she was going through and the differences between how she was in her 20s and how she is now and what she gave up in her 20s for what she has now. All of that, I think, started really interesting me. More to the point, it was really interesting to my editor. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like when I turned in a draft, he was like, you're resisting the fact that this is Sue Ellen's story. And I was like, wow, yeah, you're totally right. 
And so he was like, so give us Sue Ellen's story. You know, I think when you're writing, like, so so often you, like, can't see the forest or the trees, right? You're in the middle of it, and, like, there's, like, such an obvious answer to, to what you're writing or a problem that you're having that someone takes a look at it and they're like, well, just do this, right? Like, just go write it. And so once he pointed that out to me, it was sort of like opening this whole new world where I was like, oh, wow, I, I can really explore this woman in a way that I think she really deserves. That's not to say that I wasn't really interested in the rest of the characters and sort of what they were going through, but it didn't start off necessarily as her story. It started off as a family story. I think it became over the process of drafting it, it really became her story. Yeah, and I imagine that as you're writing as well, the characters take over. They demand to be heard. And yeah. I have a feeling, knowing the nuances of her character, that she probably was like, you are going to tell yeah. my story yeah. as it deserves to be told. Yeah. Totally. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I just think that characters who have those identifiable characteristics that we see in ourselves are so much more fun to go on a journey with because if you are reading a book as wonderful as that book may be if for whatever reason that character is someone that you just don't gel with like Dean for instance we'll talk more about him later but yeah my love for Sue Ellen is maybe a little bit muted by my hatred for Dean I can have both I realized I could have both so it's totally fine to love Sue Ellen as much as I do and hate Dean as much as I do and Will is Sue Ellen's son, and she loves him for all his faults. And he is actually the character that I started out not liking and then ended up loving him almost as much as Sue Ellen, <laughs> only because I had to show loyalty to her because I loved her first. But I think it's okay to admit that you go through peaks oh, and yeah. troughs and roller coaster for characters. And yeah. one of my favorite things that you said to me when I was reading is that you love writing despicable characters. Yeah. And I'm not saying Will is a despicable character. I mean, Dean is on that level. But why do you love writing despicable characters? What is it about it that you like so much? I think really flawed, selfish people are like more interesting to figure out. And and trying to think about that person and what motivates a person like that is just interesting. And I think that we're all really obviously flawed people. And so to write characters that are just good and nice and humorless and earnest and all of those good things. I mean, like we need those characters. They don't interest me. And when I, as a reader, they don't really do it for me. It allows you to kind of think about the parts of yourself maybe that you prefer not to think about or the parts of your loved ones that you prefer not to think about that often. My husband is always complaining when he's reading my work because he'll read something that I wrote and, and he'll say, like, you literally just took this part of me that that you don't like and <laughs> that tiny part into the defining characteristic of one of your characters. And I try not to do that. I don't know. I just think that they're much more interesting. Yeah, well, your husband hasn't seen Princess Bride or doesn't like it as much as we do. See, I made him watch it with me and he was like, I think that the real reason you like this movie is because of nostalgia. And I was like, no, it is like a legitimately good movie. It's such a good movie. Yeah, I find it really interesting because the betrayal happens for Will and he doesn't end up getting the job that he thought he was going to get. And my fascination with that scene or those scenes throughout that is just how justified the person makes it like, oh, you know, it's, it's no big deal. You know, like these things happen, like whatever. And it's just like, 
what the actual hell? Like, no, these things don't happen. I'm kind of giving it away, but it's so ridiculous. And then the funny scene for Will, well, there's so many, but the scene where he's on the plane and he's just so restless and he just wants to like get on the ground. But the piece de resistance of Will is what he ends up doing later in the book. And it is kind of funny because I almost feel like it's an eye for an eye because he had it done to him. Yeah. Now he's doing it and he's justified it. And it is interesting because I feel like for all of Will's flaws, he is the man that he is because of what's been dealt to him. And I almost kind of got angry for him because he's just seen so much unfairness in his life. And I really wanted for him to have that happy bit when finally gets to Greece, the love match that I love so much. You're so good at writing these love matches. I have to admit, I'm not always... on board when there's relationships in books. But then right as I'm getting to that point, Christos comes into our lives and I just love him so much. (laughs) And I actually wonder if maybe he was from New Jersey, maybe I wouldn't like him as much. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But because he's Greek, I think I'm just like, Christos. Oh my God, I swooned. I swooned and I swooned. I didn't want to swoon, but I did. I gave into it. And I just wanted to know, kind of like with Sue Ellen and kind of giving her more of a voice than you thought you were going to, did you always know that this relationship was going to kind of serve as the backbone to the memories that Sue Ellen goes back and forth with? And did you know you wanted it to be that special? No, I didn't. I actually hate writing relationships and I like hate writing about romance. In my last book, The People We Hate at the Wedding, there's not a single relationship that works out. All the characters, with the exception of one, are in just like disastrously unhealthy relationships. So I'm with you. And like, I I actually don't even like, I don't like reading about relationships either. Like, I don't like reading romance at all. And so with this one, it was sort of funny. I consider this actually to be like the first and perhaps only romance that I'll ever write. (laughs) The book I'm writing now certainly doesn't have any. But Christos and Sue Allen in in my original conception of the book were not actually lovers. And Christos is, just to give a little bit of context, sort of this man who ran this inn where the family is staying when Sue Ellen was in her 20s um, and they fell in love. But in my original conception of the book, they were not lovers. They had this incredibly intense friendship and sort of intellectual parody. And they meant that much to each other, particularly because it is a book about regret. And this is a romance, obviously, Sue Ellen ends up with Dean. This is a romance that doesn't work out for a number of reasons. And so to feel that sort of regret, it needed to come from a lost love or that what Sue Ellen thought was the love of her life, but she made kind of the wrong decision, frankly. So I'm with you in that, like, at first I was like, I don't want to write a romance. (laughs) It's so hard not to want to say what I want to say because it's going to give away the big plot. But Uh the fact that Christos and Sue Ellen part and it's heartbreaking, the goodbyes are so hard and... Then what happens with her and Dean happens. And I'm just like, if she had stayed with Christos, this might not have happened. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so bittersweet. And it's such a bitter pill to have to swallow. And it's so heartbreaking that they leave each other. I think what's interesting as well about the christos Sue Ellen relationship is that, to me, it was about timing. She met Christos and stayed at the Alcatrona and... It just ended up being, dare I say, the, the cliche phrase, fate, which is okay. Fate is great. Things happen. But she eventually brings her family to Greece in the present time. And 
There are so many memories. So she has her memories of being there in the 20s. She has her memories that she was with Christos. And I messaged you about this. She's It's kind of like a flip-flop because she's bringing her present to a place where she has such a strong feeling of the past. But there's also that connection in California, in Berkeley, with Christos. And I just really wanted to get your thoughts about how you feel Maybe when you read or when you write or both, why do you think it's so easy to hold on to memories even when they're so painful? Is it more because we want to hold on to that spark that was there in us when the good times were happening? Or do you think we hold on to these kind of painful memories because they kind of keep us guessing and and keep us on the right path for the future? I mean, I think it's a combination of all of those things. I mean, it's another really great question. Nicole, these questions are great. I think it's a combination of all of those things. I also think that, like, memories get less true every day, right? Like, the longer we hold on to them, the longer that we, I think, consciously or subconsciously edit them, which I think is like a coping mechanism, right? You're able to sort of have this really, you know, traumatic or disastrous memory, and then you do what you need to do with it which is not to say that we escape them so much as they do burden us. But yeah, as like a way of learning how to prevent future mistakes is a way of sort of reminding yourself who you are, you know, all of those things, you know, memory, I find, and I'm sure you can tell in reading the book, screwed up families in memory. Those are that's my that's my bread and butter. They're both really, really fascinating. And how we con ourselves with our memories, I think is like super, super fascinating. As an aside, my parents were here over over Christmas here in New York and just telling stories with them. It was like so interesting. My, you know, it was just my husband and my parents and me. And I was telling stories from when I was younger and the differences of how my father, my mother and I re- recollect specific event is just hilarious and strange and important and you know I think says so much about how the three of us individually have allowed memories to evolve in ways that fit our individual narratives and allow us to sort of support our own individual narratives of who we are what we believe what we want of the kind of person we want to think we are so that intersection I think is just profoundly interesting yeah I absolutely agree I guess kind of the memories depending on whether they're happy or you know painful or, or maybe even a mixture the way we hold on to them is very interesting as well whether we write them down, whether we just keep them locked away in our minds and when they come out, and I'm sure certain nods to your real life in here, you know, however much is autobiographical. And it's really interesting to see because when you put it on paper, you start going back and going, oh my gosh, I remember it this way, but actually did it happen that way? And then you have to start putting the puzzle pieces together. And I almost felt like with all the characters, we do get a glimpse into how they act and how they respond to things. But at the same time, I also felt like there was still room to understand more about how they really truly felt about it. And I felt like even though we didn't get the full, full story, because the book would be hundreds and hundreds of pages, exactly, which, you know, I would totally support. Um, (laughs) But you, you don't get the full truth, even when someone is telling you this is my version of it. So you know it's not the full truth, which is really interesting. And I think we do that as... As humans, we, especially if it's people we 
know and things we're always like maybe a little bit guarded not to give away too much but then want to share that kind of memory with that person which is really interesting and I think also at what stage someone joins that experience is really interesting so if you look at the Alcitrona and you look mm-hmm. at Eleni and how she plays into Sue Ellen's life. So she obviously comes on the scene much later because, oh, do I say that she's Christos? <laughs> okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah, so she's Christos's daughter. So obviously, again, like with Will, we wouldn't have gotten Eleni if we didn't have, you know, Christos marrying uh-huh. uh, her mother. So it's it's bittersweet. And the history behind the Alcatrona, so when we meet Eleni, we don't know her past. We don't know her connection with Sue Ellen. She gives a bit of a nod, which is, oh, she says she knows dad. They're coming to stay here. But she wants to sell the mm-hmm. piece of her father that she has left, which uh-huh. to me was just so, so heartbreaking. And But at the same time, she wants to forge her own path and she doesn't want to be crippled by something that may not necessarily have meant as much to her as it as it did to her father. And so she wants to sell to follow her dreams and really forge her own path. And I was just wondering, do you think, and I did ask you this earlier when I was reading, do you think she felt like because of what kind of happened with her mother and her mother chose to go down a different path and not follow her dreams, do you think she kind of feels like she needs to write her own story and not follow in her mother's footsteps? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. Elena is basically an orphan, but her father dies when she's in her 20s. But yeah, I think that she sees her mother, who had aspirations, kind of get stuck on this island. And, well, not get stuck, but, you know, kind of to accept a life that perhaps was not the life that the mother wanted for herself. So then Elena is in this place, and, you know, kind of going back to this discussion of memory, where she has to decide, does she hold up or does she keep this in, which is essentially her father's dream and her father's memory and her family's memory, or does she kind of, to use your words, forge her home life, right? And so it's like another thing that interests me as well is sort of what do we do with these inherited memories of people? Are we bound to them in the same way? Like, am I bound to maintain the memories of my father? Am I bound to the memories of my mother? Or is that not my responsibility? Is, is are, are my memories my responsibility? And how do you balance those two things? You know, maintaining the legacy of a family or a loved one or a friend versus, versus prioritizing your own legacy, which I think is something kind of we all go through through various, in various means and at various degrees, you know, often in our 20s or in our 30s, where you are kind of striking out and you are you know, developing a life or a family of your own, you know, how do you balance those two things? Will is, in my mind, kind of following in the shadow of his father, who is this well-known author and writer. And I think he kind of feels like he has to pay respect to that kind of family legacy that follows him everywhere he goes. And then what he ends up doing really is kind of like a slap in the face to that, which again, he sees it more as he's taking what's owed to him, I think, which again, he justifies it to an interesting degree. And then with Eleni, she, Stavros, who she's talking to at the beginning, who's like, oh, I can't believe, you know, you sell this. Like, what what do you mean? Like, you've got investors contacting you and things like that. Like, he wants her to hold on to this. And she's kind of like, I've paid my dues. Like I've, I've kept this alive for dad for so long. And, and now it's time to, to leave that in the past. But at the same time, well, what Sue Ellen ends up doing, which is really exciting. I think both her and Will, whether they're similar in age or whatever, I think they both kind of have to take a step back and say to themselves as much to anyone else. I mean, you never have to justify your life. It's your life. You do what you want. But sure. there is the, the sense of feeling like if you could just explain it to somebody, they might get it. But sometimes you don't always get it. Sometimes it just has to be enough to be like, look, dude, 
I'm doing this and you know, you're just gonna yeah. have to deal with it. But yeah, 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 it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is so interesting, particularly, and I do think it's something that happens in like your, your 20s or 30s, where yeah. this, this intense need to justify your life, right, where you're particularly, and, and it was funny, you know, before we started recording, when you were and I were, you and I were chatting, and we were talking about why you moved to the UK, and why you're living in the UK, right? I mean, there's sort of a justification, and a good one, like a justification there, and I think that I make the same justification. I grew up in California and people were always like, well, why aren't you living in California? And like, I make a justification. We're always constantly doing that, which is funny, like the, that we feel the need to do it. And it just seems so common place that you would do that. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, you look back at your life and you hold on to maybe some regrets. But then I think that a really, truly good life has those regrets. But I think it's about what you do with that yeah, that makes it so much more richer, and they make interesting stories as well. So, I mean, if you literally <laughs> had no regrets, what would your story be? It'd yeah. be a very empty page. So, I kind of want to sidetrack and talk about a character who has had no airtime, which is very remiss of me. Yeah. And you said that she's actually one of your favorite characters, which is Jenny. And she I is my favorite character. I can't, I can't really tell you who Jenny is without kind of giving away a lot. But Jenny is. We'll just say she's an acquaintance of the family. Um, She's she's an acquaintance. She knows Will. And essentially the thing that Will ends up doing that kind of follows him to Greece, Jenny's kind of keeping tabs on for him. And then she kind of ends up doing some traveling. And uh, oh man, the twist, I'll tell you. Gotta literally be sitting for this twist. But she is so, so unapologetically herself. She literally, like, be damned anyone that stands in her way because she is going to go and get it. I mean, it is a new definition for brassy, honestly. And do you know what? I have to admit, even with everything that happens to her because of her, I couldn't hate her. I could not hate her, honestly. Like I said, she's my favorite character Entire book. Basically, this book was a way for me to write about Ginny Polanski. <laughs> I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, she's she's a nut. When she's in Paris, and then when she finally ends up in Greece, and she's just chilling by the pool, and it's just so casual, and it's it's yeah. not like a huge drama. It's just like, right, I'm about to drop a bombshell, and uh, I'm going to look damn hot when I do it, because it's just fantastic. And I have to say... Oh, I know I said that I love Sue Ellen the most, but at times I was like, damn, Jenny. (laughs) Yeah, she was a fun one to write. I can tell everyone that just when you think this family is screwed up, they get screwed up some more. (laughs) It is just so delicious. I think that is the best word to say. It It is like a a meal that you never want to end. And it's just, it's so good. And one of the most delicious scenes for me which is also is equally hilarious and I know I said the romance thing but then you go and you give us Dio and (laughs) I messaged you and I said did you know that Dio means God in Spanish and I know that he's Greek but he's a Greek God and I have to say when Will is trying to take a selfie at the cafe um, and he meets Dio and I knew from the get-go I knew as soon as we meet Dio that something was going to happen. And I love him for Will. Um, He's just the best. And I don't know why. No, I do know why. I know why I like Dio for Will because they are very yin and yang. 
So yeah. Will is very high maintenance. Do you yeah. know what? Will, okay, so When Harry Met Sally is one of my favorite films. And okay. Billy Crystal explaining to Meg Ryan that she yeah. is the worst you're kind of person. Exactly. Yeah. You think you're, you're low right. maintenance, but you're actually high maintenance. Yeah. That is Will. Will yeah. is yeah. Meg Ryan. And Dio is, he's very proud of who he is, where he comes from. And I think he very much balances Will. Almost to the point where I think Will thinks he might be a little boring, actually. But then we see him go to that party. And uh-huh. it's kind of like, and you see this, like, when this older woman comes to talk to him. And it's just kind of like talking about Dio. And he's just like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah. Maybe he's not who I think he is. I love that woman, by the way. I was just wondering if, like, in terms of the arc of the development for the character, I would say that Will probably still has some questions that he's asking himself even towards the end of the book. Whereas I feel like Sue Ellen finds what she's going to do. Dean and Jenny obviously have their thing that they're going to do. But do you feel like even though Will does get a happy ending, do you feel like there was still more to him that he still has to figure out and that that's okay? You don't have to have a fully developed character path. Oh, absolutely. I think that I, yeah, I think that absolutely Will kind of comes to a place where he's managed to find a way to differentiate himself from his father, which is basically to be a decent human being, but that's it, right? He doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't have a job. He is, is sort of in a certain way, you know, had a naive, naive understanding about his relationship with Dio. So he's kind of, he's still lost, right? Which is totally fine. The summer after I graduated, I had a job, but I had no idea what I was doing. You know, like I was so lost. I like was making mistakes all over the place. And so I think that to pretend as though a 22 year old is going to have his life figured out after one summer is, it's just, unfortunately, that's not the way life works. <laughs> and so to that end, I am fine with sort of where Will's story ends. I think to try to force a kind of a, a, a neat into his story would be a little unrealistic, yeah. particularly given his character throughout the rest of the novel, which yeah. is he's like kind of a mess. Yeah. I think it would be a discredit to him as a character as well. And I think Will would come in full force and be like, no, that's that's not how it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a mess. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think before we get on to the last question, I just have another observation that I was kind of thinking about as we've been talking. And I think one of the other interesting aspects of this story is the multi-generational kind of perspectives. So if you kind of break them down, so you have Sue Ellen who we we know her as a young woman, we know what her adventures were, we know how she forges her journey, mm-hmm. you know, back to California, builds a life, builds a family, and then I loved what she ends up doing um, at the end. And then we have Dean who he ends up getting his ending and good luck to him. And then Jenny has a similar yeah. journey that again, I'm not going to give it away. And then Will, as we've just said, you know, he doesn't really have his full kind of completion because he's still very young and there's still loads to learn and and to figure out but when you bring them all over into a place like Greece which you know I was laughing earlier about the Greek tragedy yeah it's kind of like what you said about your parents remembering things and again also to your point of when you're in your 20s you do not have shit figured out in fact the complete opposite and what I loved about your book is that especially Sue Ellen, because we see more of her past, present, and then we end up knowing what her future is. So we get the full spectrum. The person that she was isn't necessarily, again, the person that she ends up being. 
kind of from start to finish. But I loved that. I loved that, again, it wasn't, nobody was really tidy, to be honest. It wasn't like we knew exactly what was going to happen from start to finish. And that's what I really loved is that it wasn't predictable. It wasn't by any means something that I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense or whatever. I kind of liked that it was a mess, but it was a beautiful mess, if that oh, makes sense. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you were like, what exactly is she going to say at the end of that? I love that. That's like the biggest compliment. You know, I think that I usually, or my editor also makes fun of me for this. I really, really kind of hate, like I call them literary coincidences, yeah. where suddenly in a book, like two characters happen to be at the same place at the same time, and they have a bit big backstory. I don't know. And it, yeah. it just like, drives me nuts. So a tidy mess is a compliment. And a book that I just, I can't praise it enough. I absolutely loved it. And I'll talk a little bit more about why everyone should read it um, kind of towards the end. But I want to finish on the premise of this podcast, which is I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and it's great literature frozen in time. I've made notes for myself. <laughs> Yay. I would love to know what other books and authors you would want on your shelf next to your book. I want to preface this by saying that these are people, these are like my literary heroes. And so these are not people who I think I am writing in the same league as. But if, if this is a dream situation, I, Zadie Smith is one of my all-time favorite writers. I think her insights, her characters are also sort of kind of beautiful messes. And she writes with such heart and compassion for both for her stories and the people that she's writing about. So, so Zadie Smith, I love. I guess this past summer I read The Idiot by Elif yeah, Bottoman, which was like, I can't stop thinking about it. I, I recommended it today. I recommend it to people all the time. I think it's it's phenomenal. And again, her insights, her humor, her way of using humor to, um, I think a lot of times funny books are are sort of not looked down upon, but aren't held to the same esteem as like very earnest, very serious books. But I think that humor, in fact, is a way to to get at really important questions and truths and problems that's equally as valid as, you know, something that's very serious and very earnest. And the idiot does that really, really well. So I would want to be by them. I would also want to be by, I don't know if you had the chance to read Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. That was a book that I also recommend kind of daily to people. Um, I always tell people that it does things with fiction that I like didn't know you were allowed to do with fiction. I, I thought it was incredible. And so, okay, so those are like the contemporary ones. So I just reread Tale of Two Cities. I'm like a huge Dickens fan. I know that, that people often don't take Dickens that seriously, but he's like so fun and so plotty and funny and smart. And I just, I like, I'm obsessed. And so I would want to be up there next to him. I'm sorry, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Um, <laughs> Also, I, Kevin Wilson, who just, who wrote The Family Fang and who also wrote um, Nothing to See Here, I think is also another, another writer who is smart and uses humor to, um, to get at sort of these larger questions. Those are some of them. Queer writers like Baldwin and Garth Greenwald and all of those people I think are, so I don't know, when I read the question, I was like, oh my God, that's such a good question, but it's so hard. <laughs> Hard because you know Andrew Sean Greer, who, who less is like so joyful and again uses humor as a way to really look at these profound questions of love and yeah. aging, what it means to be a gay man, and all those things. I mean, you mentioned Garth Greenwell. I can't wait for cleanness, uh, I, honestly. So I it doesn't come out here for months, and I'm heartbroken, oh. and I'm just like, 
do I order it off Amazon US or do I wait? And oh, it's so hard, uh, honestly. Yeah. I ended up ordering yours from Amazon US because I was like, I'm not <laughs> waiting for that to come out. So um, I might end up doing that with cleanness. That's an amazing bookshelf. And I think kind of what you pointed out just there about humor. So yeah. I literally just thought that humor is a defense mechanism for when things are uncomfortable. And I think that is a perfect way to describe yeah. your book because when things get painful, it's when hilarity ensues. And I yeah. think that's a great way to describe it. Honestly, Grant, I can't thank you enough for having oh, with me. And this has been a blast. It's been so much fun. And I would just like to go on record <laughs> to say that Grant's book is phenomenal. I loved every thank second you. of it. And if you love humor, if you love tragedy, if you love messy families and you want to travel to Greece without having to actually get on a plane this is the perfect book the perfect anecdote to anything that's in your life that isn't going great because it just was like a, a hug from a friend I just loved it oh, so much thank you so much I, that means the world to me oh, I really appreciate that thank you um and I would just like to say for anyone that wants to get in touch to tell you how much they love you and your book what's the best way to do that Probably Twitter. I just, I'm at, you know, at Grant Ginder. I'm... Don't maybe tweet him all at once, but definitely <laughs> form a very orderly queue and go and get uh, this book and then message me and Grant and tell me how much you love it as well. And I know that it will be a very proud book on your bookshelf as well. So thank you so much for chatting with thank me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.